Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. January and February have been full of commemorative moments for both the Black and Jewish communities. The birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., the death anniversary of Anne Frank, International Holocaust Remembrance, and Black History Month. We sat down individually with three founders of the Black Jewish Congressional Caucus, Democratic Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, to discuss why the caucus exists, the issues they think it will address, and why it's important for Black and Jewish leaders to work together, not apart. I first asked about the original purpose of the Black Jewish Congressional Caucus, how that purpose has evolved since its conception, and what the main issues the caucus hopes to address. We first posed the question to Chief Founder Representative Brenda Lawrence. When I went to my colleagues and asked them if they would be interested in forming a Black Jewish Caucus, specifically this administration, I have seen an uptick in divisiveness and racial tension, and also hate crimes have been reported as uh, invalidated, being on uh, increasing. Mm-hmm. And we have such a strong and long history of Black America and the Jewish community coming together in those times when our country lost its way. The Jewish community came to the support of the Black community during the Civil Rights Movement, We have shared experience between the Holocaust and slavery of being a people oppressed by no other reason except for who we are. Mm -hmm. And um, we know and we feel uniquely the stereotypes and the tension that are often placed on us as black and Jewish citizens of this country. And we are here in Congress to write laws and policies to ensure equality, to make sure that we're enforcing the civil rights of this country. And we should be having a unique conversation around this. And I can tell you I was so impressed with the support and willingness in a bipartisan way to form the caucus. So what are the main issues that the caucus hopes to address? Well, I want you to know that as we look at hate crimes, and it's discrimination, it's anti-Semitic, it's racist, it's xenophobic. Um, I often go back to Martin Luther King, our unity is born of our common struggle for centuries, not only to rid ourselves of bondage, but to make oppression of any people by others impossible. So what we plan or what our objectives are is that we will make sure that we are uniquely informed, we are aware of these incidents and policies and situations where we see uh, racism not being addressed properly or being able or being nurtured, and that we can pass policies and enforce laws through our justice system to ensure we're holding true to one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Next, we asked Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz. During the Civil Rights Movement, 
Jewish Americans lent critical support to the NAACP and fought alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to challenge racial segregation in public accommodations. And black leaders have stood with the Jewish community following the tragic shootings at synagogues in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Poway, California. Joachim Prinz, a German-American rabbi and refugee of Nazi Germany, represented the Jewish community as an organizer during the 1963 March on Washington. So mm-hmm. that history is long and, and significant. And so the, the, uh, the Black Jewish Caucus is really important for us to be able to, to uh, retie those binds and make sure that we can work on the modern-day issues that are of mutual concern to both communities. Our purpose is to assemble leaders to learn from one another, advocate for joint concerns, uh, regardless of party we believe, uh, and we exist because all partners are committed to calling out hate and racism and discrimination, anti-Semitism and xenophobia, whenever and wherever it rears its ugly head. And, you know, our alliance in the Black Jewish Caucus is really important so that we can work to honor and strengthen and safeguard the bond of our communities that have been developed in the struggle for equality in America. Then we asked Representative Lee Zeldin. There is a need to better bridge the gap between the Jewish community and the black community, and understanding a long, rich history of the the black community fighting for, on behalf of, with the Jewish community and, uh, community and vice versa, uh, this isn't a new concept for us to be working closely. And back in World War II, it was the 761st Tank Battalion that liberated Gunskirchkin and got almost 400 medals for their heroics, their efforts. And it was Jewish members who stood side by side with the black community during the civil rights push. And, and some actually ended up giving up uh, their lives in that fight for justice and, and equality. Fast forward to 2019. This was announced in June. Uh, but we were talking to each other about it for a few months leading up to that. Uh, Brenda Lawrence uh, really did a fantastic job taking a lead initiative. The American Jewish Committee was also influential and helpful with that cause. Uh, how has it evolved since then? I would say that more and more people have expressed interest in being part of it. So it's become uh, bigger and it's allowed us to build a, a stronger network. And, and we've seen a divide close, uh, but you know, challenges still exist. And we just had a, a Hanukkah in 2019 that was marked by violent anti-Semitic attacks in and around the New York City area. Uh, and some of the, the people who were paying attention to it saw that uh, the individuals who were carrying out the attacks weren't neo-Nazis. They weren't, uh, they weren't white supremacists. They weren't uh, radical Islamic extremists. Uh, and they, they weren't uh, you know, politically motivated. It was uh, a different dynamic than what you might have been talking about in June of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had some people who were talking about the the Black Israel, uh, the Hebrew uh, Israelite movement, uh, but then others within that movement rejecting the acts carried out uh, up in Munzee, mm-hmm. attacking the the rabbi's home as well as attacking uh, the the Jewish. 
a kosher supermarket in New Jersey. So in a way, if you ask me how it evolved, I'd say part of it's been positive uh, with all of the, the outreach and all of the new relationships, and part of it has been uh, an added challenge, added friction as we witness what happened in the Hanukkah of 2019 and struggling with figuring out how to as quickly as possible uh, deal with that. Next, we asked how the black community can support Jewish concerns and how the Jewish community can more forcefully advocate for African-American issues. Here's what Brenda Lawrence had to say. Yes, the Jewish community has in the past, as as you know, during the civil rights movement, the Jewish community is one of our strongest legal and justice advocates uh, in the judicial system. But it is lifting the voice of black America Black Lives Matter, uh, institutional. That is our biggest challenge, institutional racism, Mm -hmm. when it comes to the education, when it comes to housing, when it comes to uh, the criminal justice system. Lending a voice to the black community and pointing out those things that are wrong. In the black community, what we can do is make sure that we are calling out the stereotypes against the uh, Jewish community. Then we heard from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. There is really some significant overlap that particularly with the violence and the anti-Semitism and bigotry that is being hurled at our communities, not just with these horrendous murders, but with social media attacks and you know protests against our communities and discriminatory actions. So we have a lot on our plate initially that I think are, in my view, important for our communities mutually. And, you know, because the caucus is really in its infancy, as we mature and move down the road, get to know one another's issues that, you know, we can reach across the aisle and uh, across our communities in the caucus, focus on trying to prioritize the issues that the individual communities find important. And lastly, Representative Lee Zeldin. Well, you know, we spent a lot of time so far in the interview talking about the way the Jewish community has been targeted with not just anti-Semitic thoughts, but anti-Semitic actions, violent in some cases, of it's cost people their lives. So, you know, the the ways for the the black community to identify what the the top issues are um, right now for for the Jewish community we're seeing it play out mm-hmm. really in the national news and the national debate for the black community uh, th- there still is racism uh, in our country in many respects and I think that teaching tolerance and and understanding ensuring that policies aren't discriminatory that individuals have the ability to achieve the American dream and shouldn't be held back just because they might be someone of color or they might be practicing a different religion like Judaism. That discrimination, that racism still exists in our country. We saw it play out not too long ago on Long Island, uh, where I'm from. The first congressional district of New York is on the east end of Long Island. Uh, There was a story that was in Newsday. It was an investigative report of members of the real estate industry discriminating against uh, people of color who were trying to find housing, trying to uh, purchase a home to achieve the American dream. And unfortunately, that's an exception and not the norm. It's rare. Uh, but the response has been robust with investigations that have been lost, uh, launched, as well as the real estate industry themselves uh, self-policing them, uh, each other uh, to educate, better educate each other and to push out of their industry people who are discriminating against 
uh, black individuals who are trying to own a home and achieve the American dream. So uh, I would say as far as identifying some of the biggest needs right now of the black community, uh, I would say that just like it was easy to identify anti-Semitism as a top need that needs to get addressed for the Jewish community, I would say racism is something that is very prevalent and still needs to be addressed absolutely with regards to the black community. Next, we asked what issues of mutual concern the caucus can address. Here's what Brenda Lawrence had to say. I think it's extremely important that the black and Jewish community never allow the history of oppression for either of our people to be forgotten. You know, there are some people who like to say the Holocaust didn't happen. There are people who say, uh, you know, black people sold each other to slavery. So what's the big deal? We cannot allow the history that, as horrific as it is, to be forgotten. And that's something else that I think that we uniquely can do as citizens of this country and as survivors. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Right now we have a really significant challenge around white supremacy and the rise of white supremacists in the United States White supremacists have increasingly targeted and killed large groups of people in recent years because of their race or religion in the United States. In 2015, we had nine African-Americans who were murdered murdered by a gunman whose name I won't mention at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, Mother Emanuel, in Charleston, South Carolina, because, and this is quoting the murderer, he knew that it would be a place to get a small amount of black people in one area. You had... Robert Bowers last year yelled anti-Semitic slurs before he opened fire and killed 11 worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that was the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in American history. You've had attacks on mosques where insecurity has had to be increased after 51 people were massacred at two mosques in New Zealand. So we have a very current, urgent challenge with bigotry, anti-Semitism, white supremacists, who are engaging in in deadly violence. And so that's at the security and for houses of worship. Fighting anti-Semitism and bigotry is is really at the top of our current list of issues. The very tragic areas of mutual concern for for both communities and and Yes, and I would would also add, uh, particularly because most of these crimes are perpetrated with guns, Mm -hmm. the Jewish community and the African-American community have, uh, have really come together around making sure that we can close all the loopholes that allow people who shouldn't have a gun under federal law here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to be able to get them. Um, Now, that issue is unfortunately not bipartisan. I was just getting ready to say (laughs) that that'll be more of a challenge. It's not bipartisan. Um, It doesn't mean that that the caucus uh, on black-Jewish relations can't take it on. Then we hear from Lee Zeldin. There is an underlying sentiment of, of hate in our society, there's uh, a lack of tolerance, of education, of community. So we are both stronger, working together, united. And where we are mutual partners on is where we want to talk about how do we combat hate? How do we educate our young kids to to be more tolerant, to understand the history of racism, the history of anti-Semitism? And there's no requirement that we can only teach about one. And uh, getting out in the community, uh, partnering with each other also shows how to build bridges. It sets a strong example for 
not just young kids, but also adults as well, to see people of different backgrounds working together to partner. And we're diverse, too. I mean, we have this includes not just uh, black members of Congress and Jewish members of Congress. It includes Republicans and Democrats. It includes conservatives, moderates, and liberals. Uh, so the, the background uh, of the caucus you see it in the membership, and you also see it with the groups that have connected themselves to the caucus, uh, working with the caucus, uh, coming from the diverse uh, backgrounds across this country as well. Finally, we asked how the caucus of federal lawmakers and local leaders can address any existing or new tension between the black and Jewish communities. Representative Lawrence had this to say. Well, you know, I'm driven by a lot of things being a black woman in America. But I'm driven as a member of Congress by our law, our freedoms, our rights, our Constitution, you know, the Civil Rights Amendments. I am held accountable to that. And so when we talk about um, what we can do specifically with the Black Jewish Caucus, we are the gatekeepers of freedom and rights in America. And so when we talk about the justice system, I sit on government oversight. I sit on appropriations. How do we fund programs in America? How do we ensure that our justice system is held accountable, that we collect data, that we make sure that we mandate training, that we are using our FBI to be able to identify those um, hate groups. Uh, Social media now has taken uh, racism and the growth of this domestic terrorism to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. So we are constantly being confronted with a responsibility as members of Congress to ensure that we are not allowing this, this ugly seed to grow in our country. And we have been doing it now for decades, if not a century. So we still have that responsibility. Unfortunately, it has been magnified in these last four years. And that's why I'm so compelled and committed to uh, the work of the Black Jewish Caucus. Here's how Debbie Wasserman Schultz responded. First, I think it's important not to overstate um, and the increase, any increased tension, because uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm not aware of really any well-developed, comprehensive increased tension between the African-American communities and and the Jewish community. You know, certainly, I think it's more of a concern, and the need for the Caucus on Black-Jewish Relations in Congress was uh, really propelled by that we have maybe had some of the ties between our communities fray, as Mm -hmm. in from underuse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so bringing us together and making sure that we can affirmatively bring our communities together, you know, do things like what I do in my district, which is hold community dialogues, uh, mm-hmm. roundtables about solutions and causes. Um, I know I, I do that regularly in my district uh, where we convene you know, leadership from both of both communities. We have one another's back. I represent one of the largest Jewish communities and a large African-American community in South Florida. And our community leadership has one another's back when there is an issue that is important to the other. You know, we've made a special point of bringing a cross-section of faith and community leaders together when there are times of increased racist incidents or tragedy. 
for example, you had many Jewish community leaders stood side by side in my community in South Florida to press for the change of the names of three streets in the city of Hollywood, Florida, which were named after a Confederate general, a Ku Klux Klan leader, and another icon of the racist past. And we were able to successfully come together, and the city agreed to change the name of those streets. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the kinds of things where we need to step up, and, and you know, those, those might seem like more minor everyday aggravations or insults, but those are the kinds of things that, you know, if you are a member of the group that has been hurt and has lived through the extending experience by an individual who was honored with a street name, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, making sure that we can address that concern and have one another's backs is important. And lastly, Lee Zeldin's reply. Well, first, I would say if anyone is, is silent, they're, they're wrong. Step number one is you have to be willing to stand up, to speak out, to confront uh, the hate that is out there. And if you're just silent and not willing to say anything about what we just witnessed uh, in Hanukkah, uh, Hanukkah 2019 and around the New York City area, then, then you're wrong. But then when you speak out, there are some people who brainstorm a whole long list of options in order to choose one, check a box, and then move on, saying, well, I did my part. There's nothing else I need to do here. My attitude is different than that. I would say you you should brainstorm every single possible option that you can do to help and then do every single option that you just identified to to assist. There's a lot that needs to get done, and you're asking strictly from a federal standpoint, whether it's on the education standpoint from uh, the Never Never Again Education Act or it's the House passing S-1, which was passed with – uh, about 80% or so of, of the Senate strong bipartisan support to combat the BDS movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have le- pieces of legislation that are out there. You see it from the appropriations uh, where you're providing support to uh, organizations and communities that need help. It's different levels of government where the federal law enforcement can work with state and local law enforcement. Uh, and every level of government, you can identify different legislative initiatives, initiatives different appropriation initiatives, talking with each other, getting out in the community, uh, and encouraging other community leaders to to step up. Uh, I could identify legislative solutions that Albany can do, that uh, legislative solutions that New York City can do. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's not just something that the, uh, the elected officials and government need to pass laws. Uh, it really comes right down to, as you point out in your question, it's it's on the streets, uh, and it really requires people at the community level to to take charge. Uh, of their community to work together. And again, it gets back to the reason why it's good to have a black Jewish caucus for uh, people to to feel like you you don't have to only talk to people who are just like you in order to solve a problem. Actually, in the military, we call it force multipliers. Mm -hmm. If you want to solve a problem, the best thing to do is to find anyone who can be an ally uh, of any background and then work together to solve it. In just under two weeks, on Monday, March 2nd, Israelis will vote to elect a new Knesset. It has been over a year since Israel last had a functioning coalition government, and the country has been voting every five months or so to elect a new set of legislators. Is the third time the charm? Will this next vote finally break the gridlock? Here to help us understand what's going on in Israeli politics is Avital Leibovich, the director of AJC Jerusalem. Avital, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
So I'll, I'll let our listeners peek behind the curtain a little bit uh, as to you know how the sausage gets made. I don't always have all these questions in my head. Sometimes I'll reach out to uh, colleagues of ours or to a friend of mine and say, you know, what's the number one question you have about whatever the topic is? And so I, I reached out to a colleague. I asked her, you know, what's the number one question you have about these upcoming Israeli elections, the third round of elections that Israel is having in a year? And she said, why? So, Avital, tell us, you know, why is Israel going back to elections? Well, I'll make some sense into it, but it's still very much annoying for us living in Israel. Uh, In order to have a government in Israel, a party or a leader of a major party needs to build uh, a coalition of parties uh, with 61 mandates. Currently, we have 14 parties running to the government of Israel. Um, In the last elections and the ones before that, uh, we actually didn't have a leader who was able to form a coalition. The Likud party did not make it to 61 mandates. They only received 32. With the other partners, uh, right-wing parties, they didn't even come close to 61. And the opponents, the major opponents of the Likud, which is another party called Blue and White, headed by Gantz, uh, they again did not uh, manage to build a coalition with left-wing parties and maybe even the Arab uh, list party. And therefore, uh, here we are again, in less than two weeks, Israel will be facing its third elections in, in over just over a year, which is quite uh, problematic for us living here. Many things are in a stalemate here in Israel including international relations, including budgetary issues of different ministries. And this is not really a healthy situation for a successful country like Israel to be in. Mm -hmm. So like you said, the center party, blue and white, these challengers, they had the most seats in September. They got 33 seats out of 120. The Likud, the ruling right-wing party, had one fewer. They had 32. Next up was the predominantly Arab party, the joint list, which got 13, and on and on down, getting smaller and smaller. Basically, it it almost matters less how many seats each individual party gets um, as it does how much the two kind of big blocks get, the right and religious block and the left and Arab block, neither of which are actually such natural partners. So watching these polls closely, as I'm sure you do, are the March elections, are the elections that will be taking place on March 2nd, are they shaping up to be any different, to have different results? So I would say the following. The polls in Israel are never right. Usually they are not right. But it is, you're right that it is the only measuring tool we have. But the fate of the elections uh, coming up in less than two weeks will be determined by two factors. Number one is the percentage of voters. In other words, in Israel, we are quite, uh, I would say, a politically involved nation. We do have a very high percentage of voting. It's around 68% on a slow year, more than that, more or less, uh, a lot more than in the U.S. But the question is, which sector of the population will go out to vote? For example, it's a known fact that the ultra-Orthodox which vote for the ultra-Orthodox parties, they go usually to vote in very high percentages. The question is whether those you know, uh, uh, liberals in Tel Aviv will go to vote or stay home, 
or maybe the settlers will go to vote or decide to stay home. So this will be a very uh, crucial factor in determining the results of the elections. The second factor that will have a direct impact is Lieberman. Avigdor Lieberman is directing a party called Israel Beitenu, Israel Our Home. And uh, according to the latest polls, his party should get between seven and eight mandates. Now, his natural positioning would be with a right block, but he does have some sort of resentment to Netanyahu, and therefore he can find himself, for political reasons, to be on the centrist liberal block. So he is also a relative factor and will have an impact on the results of the elections. In American politics, we sometimes talk about an October surprise. We vote at the beginning of November, and an October surprise is when um, something comes out, you know, just in the few weeks before. It could be a, a devastating piece of news, usually for one of the main candidates, something that they don't have enough time to recover from. So there were maybe a couple of February surprises for Israel, which is about to vote at the beginning of March. Actually, technically, they were end of January surprises, and also neither of them were all that unexpected. Uh, But we'll just roll with the metaphor here. On the same day, actually, on January 28th in the morning, Prime Minister Netanyahu was finally formally indicted uh, on several charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. And later that day, he stood at the White House next to President Trump and kind of triumphantly, the two of them announced this American peace plan for Israel and the Palestinians, which is seen as very good for Israel, which much of the Israeli kind of center and center right are really uh, happy about. To what extent did either of those things move the needle? Are we seeing people more skeptical of the prime minister as a result of the indictment or more supportive of him as a result of this deal? So, Sefi, I think you can say a lot of things about the Israelis, but one thing is is for sure. Israelis are not naive. So when that whole ceremony took place in the White House, yes, Israelis' hearts were filled with pride and with a strong sense of a strong U.S. ally. But no one actually thought that this plan will happen tomorrow morning. Hmm. And in every single poll in the last year, two years, when Israelis were asked, who is better equipped to be the prime minister, Netanyahu or Gantz, by a very big margin, Netanyahu got the most percentages. So from a leadership perspective, I don't see any possible October surprise that will change that. There is no arguing in the fact that Netanyahu does have an indictment. There is no arguing of the fact that Netanyahu has very good relations with President Trump and President Putin and many other leaders in the Arab world, but also in other countries all over the world. Africa, we just seen a visit in Sudan and so on. So I don't think that really plays out as a major factor in changing or influencing the results in a different way altogether. The really big question, as I said, is Lieberman, which side will he take? And how many voters will actually go out on uh, March 2nd and vote? As we record on Thursday morning, uh, last night there was just a big and fiery primary debate uh, among the Democratic candidates here in the U.S. Are there debates that people could be tuning into in the Israeli prime minister race? 
So, you know, actually Israel took a lot of things from America, but the debate culture was not really one of them, <laughs> I would say. The last serious debate we had here between two major leaders of parties was in 1999, and the one before that was in 1996. So this is not a very popular kind of situation for politicians here. Politicians here like really to... Uh, bargain with the media for different kinds of exposures, interviews, and so on. Actually, in the last couple of days, uh, Netanyahu did challenge Gantz and called him to debate him on national TV. But Gantz uh, actually took the advice of his advisors and declined this, knowing that he has significantly less experience with the public appearances than Netanyahu, and that he could uh, likely uh, lose such a debate. So as far as I can see ahead, I don't expect a debate between the two of them, which is a shame because I think it could be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting as well, because I, I think Netanyahu has kind of been avoiding debates himself for the past you know, 10 years or so that he's now pushing for one with Gantz. Indeed, but all of the political leaders, not only Netanyahu, refused to have debates, and so that never happened. The last one, as I said, was really years and years ago. But here, actually, I think Gantz lost points because Gantz was the first one to call Netanyahu for a debate because he thought that, as you said, traditionally Netanyahu doesn't do debates, and this time he will refuse. But Netanyahu surprised Gantz and uh, agree to it, and then Gantz backed down. Mm -hmm. So I think actually in this situation, Gantz really lost a little bit and and really demonstrated lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, Avital, you spoke about turnout a little bit before, and I want to return to that as we close. Is there a point at which the Israeli public just gets exhausted? I mean, just gets like totally tired of elections. Are we at that point now? Are we going to see turnout plummet in this third round? Might we have to wait for a fourth round? Could we see one of the main parties revolt against their leadership? What's going to be the game changer that will ultimately break this stalemate? So I think that uh, Israelis are very, very indifferent at this point of time to the upcoming elections. I mean, if you would be uh, uh, an alien from another planet visiting Israel right now, and I would not tell you that there is elections, there would probably not be a way for you to know that, because really people are so indifferent the third time uh, around, and they're so angry with this kind of situation. And therefore, again, the question of turnout is a critical one. For these last couple of days before the elections, the heads of parties are really going all over the country, meeting with all sectors. You know, Netanyahu, for example, gave a major interview in the biggest uh, Arab news site called Panet. The day before that, uh, Gantz had a big conference with the Ethiopian community in one of the cities here, and so on and so forth. So they're touring the country. They're trying to, you know, raise awareness. They're trying to recruit more votes. But at the end of the day, the big question still remains whether Israelis will overcome this sense of indifference and uh, lack of trust to politicians and really go out and vote. This will know in less than two weeks. Well, we'll be watching closely and uh, we'll look forward to giving our listeners another update when we do know in two weeks. Avital, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you.
Listeners whose children are applying for colleges this month might find this next segment interesting. As many as 12,000 international students are currently studying in Israeli colleges and universities. But the Council for Higher Education in Israel wants to double that. It has launched a national initiative called Study in Israel to create a brain gain for what's often referred to as the startup nation. Dozens of degree programs, including STEM subjects as well as Middle Eastern studies, agriculture, urban studies, environmental studies, have all been translated to English for North American students. With us in the studio to discuss the program is Professor Yaffa Zilberschatz, chair of the Council's Planning and Budgeting Committee, to talk about why American Jews might want to apply for the program. Professor Zilberschatz, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. So tell us about this Study for Israel initiative. How did it develop? What was the purpose behind it? Okay, so we in Israel have a wonderful academic system. A system, it consists of over 60 institutions, most of them sponsored by the government, and that's why under our auspices. Now, we figured out a thing, and that's it, that we are very excellent in many things, but we are far away remote from the average of the OECD countries having foreign students. Now, you would ask, what is that for? And we do understand that in this world, you need diversity. And part of diversity is having foreign students coming to your country and making your system much richer than just, you know, same people, same age, same, 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 same. Mm-hmm. And that's why Academic Consideration, we launched the project of study in Israel, because if the average in OECD countries is 6% foreign students, Israel has 1.5% foreign oh, students. Considerably lower. That's very low, and okay. we think it's wrong for the system. That's why we were launching it now. Our academic institutions do have many international collaborators, usually either professor versus professor, researcher versus, or Israeli going up to teach someplace Mm -hmm. or do their postdoctoral students someplace. But we have less people coming from America, as an example, to Israel to use our institutions as lecturers, as researchers, as postdoctoral students, or as summer undergraduate students, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And then we figured out, let's go with a campaign about studying Israel, make the magic of startup land, of startup country, the startup land, something that you touch, that you feel, make the Jewishness, the Christianity, the special culture of the state where religions were born part of your life. May diversity reach you, meet you, come to our campuses. You'll see Arabs, you see Jews, you see Ethiopian Jewry, and you'll see Jewish students of all ages, religious, ultra-Orthodox, non-religious, come and touch this Israel experience, yeah. study in Israel, engage in our excellence. So you said that the percentage of foreign students is very low. What about study abroad programs? Because I know a number of colleges and universities across America have study abroad programs and options in Israel. You're very right. They do have, but probably doesn't amount to big amounts of students. For example, we visited yesterday Princeton. They have a study abroad program in Israel. They're sending every year two or three students. So two or three. It, right. So okay. it's, I mean, it, it's there. The MOU are signed. But people are not lining in rows to go on the airplanes and come. Mm-hmm. Well, people are lying on rows on airplanes to come to Israel and do business and try to invest in our startup nation. Mm-hmm. 
what I am calling upon as head of my committee and as responsible for higher education in Israel, take one step before. Don't come only when you're mature already and you want to make your business. Look at our institutions because they are the seed where the startup nation grew up. Mm-hmm. It's this knowledge that made this country so special. Right. Come, feel it, touch it, let it be part of you. So now the courses, I would presume, have to be translated into the languages of the countries that you're recruiting from. First of all, where are you recruiting from? Which countries are you targeting to bring international students? And what translations are indeed available? So let's start from the very beginning. And I think that the fact that we have such a low number of foreign students is the fact that we teach in Hebrew. Mm. So it's very difficult to come and study in Hebrew. So... In order to come up with a call of study in Israel, we had to make sure that the universities and the colleges have capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. And the first and foremost capacity is translating forms to English okay. and translating courses and programs to English. Okay. Because if you cannot teach in English, you cannot have non-Israelis coming to study. How many Jews can study academic courses in Hebrew? Very few. How many foreign non-Jews can do it? So actually, what we have done in the last two years, we've invested a lot of money and energy to build capacity within institutions. We have now 23 full degrees undergraduate in our institutions and over 100 graduate degrees. So in a certain way, when we come and we call you in America, come to Israel, we know that you have for what to come. Mm -hmm. Now, we prioritized The United States is from the Western Hemisphere as a first target of bringing foreign students in all degrees up to postdoctoral experience to Israel. Mm -hmm. And from the East, we speak really about China in India. Mm -hmm. We think they're very important countries for the relations of Israel, for future business, for understanding. Probably they can get in our institutions more than they can in theirs. Mm -hmm. But it's still worth the contacts. They'll be the best advocates of the country and the best people really to convey the startup nation uh, vision, mission when they go back. So India and China and the United States. So of those 23 programs you mentioned, undergraduate, what's available? I mean, are you talking predominantly math, science, history? Everything. You can go. We've built a wonderful Internet site which is called Study in Israel, okay. Engage in Excellence, Study okay. in Israel. Go into Study in Israel, you will see each and everything that we have at the universities, what courses, who teaches what, how is life, how are the expenses, where should you live, who should you contact. It's all there. Like everything in the modern world, a good internet site will do the work. (laughs) So what about extracurricular activities? Because obviously coursework is just a a small part of college. (laughs) Right. Have you made adjustments or accommodations elsewhere on campuses? That's a very, very important question. So first of all, we've built foreign students' offices so that the students have a home because they're away of home. They must have an address for each and every question that is being raised. They must have support. Mm -hmm. So this you will find in each and every institution that calls upon foreign students to arrive in its gates. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that we believe that many of the students that arrive slash will soon or eventually will arrive to Israel, they will all desire not only to sit in the campuses, 
but actually touch upon the magic of the startup nation mm-hmm. and see how startup works mm. and really feel that they're part of whatever is going on. So I call upon from this stage to say that we have created entrepreneurship in innovation centers in each and every university. Mm-hmm. And I think that the universities and colleges that call upon foreign students will bring them through these centers mm-hmm. and will teach them on one hand, because this is an academic institution, but will also open them up to what's calling beyond the ivory tower. And we really make sure that everything that we do today at universities are sanctuating basic knowledge and basic research in the ivory tower, simultaneously opening the ivory tower to the world. Mm-hmm. This combination exists in our campuses, and we really invite each and every one to come and have his own experience. Okay. So, I mean, BDS, the pressure of BDS on campuses is just one expression of many forms of hostility that Jewish students feel on American campuses these days. And I know a lot of parents shop around for colleges that are safe for their children and are very concerned about this level of hostility. Should this initiative be viewed as an option for families to consider to avoid that kind of problematic situation? No question about it. The answer is, of course, yes. Okay. I just want to make it very clear. Actually, our motivation is very academic in that sense. But if the outcomes are also beneficial to American Jewish families, then that's what the state of Israel exists for. Mm. That whenever you have a problem any place, it's us. So we have the academic motivation, but it's not study in Technion, for example, which is in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. It's studying Technion, which is in Haifa, Israel. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Israel is the country of the Jewish people. Yeah. So that's what we are there for. Okay. Professor Zoboshatz, thank you so much for joining us in the studio, and we hope you enjoy your stay in the States. Thank you very much for hosting me, and I really apologize to the audience for my hoarse voice, which is just the outcome of this winter. Well, winter and travel. (laughs) Right. And I wish everybody Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Judah Gross, the military correspondent for the Times of Israel. Judah, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So this Shabbat, I'll be up in the picturesque community of Zichron Yaakov on Israel's northern coast, where we'll undoubtedly be talking about an article of mine that was published this week about a Lebanese man who became a spy for Israel, collecting intelligence and recruiting assets from the Hezbollah terror group, and whom Israel abruptly cut ties with last year, leaving him stranded in a foreign country facing deportation and imprisonment back home. So I'm legally barred from disclosing his name, uh, but in the article I referred to him by the pseudonym Benjamin Philip, uh, and so I'll do the same thing here. So oddly enough, the first time I spoke to Benjamin, I was also up in Zichron in August. It was shortly after my in-laws moved there from London. And he'd contacted the Times of Israel because he'd been cut off by the Mossad and was facing deportation back to Lebanon. And at that point, he said he would sooner commit suicide than go back. Benjamin had already been imprisoned by Hezbollah twice, once for a few months on suspicion that he'd been a spy for the CIA, and then again for two years when he was caught looking at the Mossad's website in Lebanon. 
he's pretty sure and he has reason to be correct uh, that if he does get sent back to Lebanon, he'll be in prison for a far longer time and face significant torture and abuse because in addition to being a spy for Israel, he's also gay. Mm. So he provided Israel with information for years and he even convinced a member of the terror group's elite Radwan unit to defect uh, and spy for Israel. And yet suddenly Israel was ghosting him. So in September, I traveled abroad to meet Benjamin. I still can't say to where. And he told me his story, including a particularly depressing childhood in southern Lebanon. It took a considerable amount of time and effort for us to be able to get our story approved by Israel's archaic, in my opinion, military censor. But even though it's been published, the story is not over. Since I met with him abroad, Benjamin has since traveled to Europe and is currently seeking asylum there. He's hopeful about his chances, and he's also getting therapy from a local LGBT organization. So this Shabbat, we'll be sitting around the Shabbat table talking about what we owe the folks who make uh, Israel's incredible intelligence and military operations possible. What about you, Manya? That's a really powerful story, Judah. Thank you for sharing it. And I also, since I have you uh, here at the table, I can thank you personally for translating the IDF's poem for children last week. Uh, I used that translation for this very segment and when we talked with my family at the Shabbat table. So in case any of our listeners have not figured this out yet, I was not raised particularly Jewish. Yiddish words do not roll off my tongue with ease, and household names or titles in the Jewish canon don't come to me naturally. Uh, Sevi here can attest to the fact that before some episodes, I occasionally have to run names and terms by him to make sure I don't sound like an utter fool, and this segment was no exception. So I can't imagine you ever sounding like an utter fool. <laughs> oh, but I just did a moment ago, <laughs> Sevi. Um, I was particularly excited that the Oxford English Dictionary has included dozens of quote-unquote Jewish terms in its latest edition. So here we go. Futzing, kvetch. Kapel. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Did I do okay? Mm-hmm. All right. And here are some easier ones that also included. Glot kosher, Hanukkah gelt, awesome sauce. Okay, the last one's not Jewish, but it is one of the <laughs> new words. There were a number of terms, though, that some people also found offensive. Yid or yiddo to refer to a Jewish person. Jew York for New York. Jew like to refer to a stereotypical characteristic of a Jewish person. Now, I have no problem with the inclusion of offensive terms. In fact, I welcome it, as long as the definition includes the fact that those terms are indeed offensive. Some entries did, some did not. Some were noted as used regularly in certain contexts, regardless of their offensiveness. For example, fans of the Tottenham Hotspurs sometimes call themselves Yids, a nickname first adopted by their opponents, now embraced by the fans themselves. Now, is that Tottenham or Tottenham? I think it's Tottenham. Oh, well, see, there you go. I can't even say British terms correctly. So this has angered the soccer club, this this reference to their uh, fandom in the Oxford English Dictionary. But linguists have rightfully argued that part of a dictionary's role is to document the history of words, their origins, and their modern adaptations. The addition of dozens of Yiddish words and Jewish phrases and, yes, derogatory terms provides a way to keep track of that. Now, interestingly, Jew-hating got its own entry as well. And the definition of anti-Semite got a revision. It's defined as characterized by prejudice, hostility, or discrimination toward Jewish people on religious, cultural, or ethnic grounds. Now, Judah, Sefi, I ask you, is that definition accurate? Is it sufficient? I think sometimes there's anti-Semitism even when no Jews are involved. Ah, interesting. Okay. Judah, what about you? 
I mean, it doesn't say that a Jew has to be in the room for it to be anti-Semitic. It's just against Jews. I think that's enough for a dictionary definition. Okay. <laughs> All right. Obviously, books have been written about what is anti-Semitism, but, you know. Captures the essence. A line in a book. It right. does the job. Okay. Well, I I honestly wondered whether anyone considered the working definition of anti-Semitism that we often discuss in our circles. Adopted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance in May 2016, the definition of anti-Semitism refers to a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred. It can be manifested rhetorically and physically. And those manifestations might include the targeting of the state of Israel when it's conceived as a Jewish collectivity. However, criticism of Israel, as we all know, similar to that leveled against any other country, can't be regarded as anti-Semitic. Now, anti-Semitism frequently charges Jews with conspiring to harm humanity, and it's often used to blame Jews for why things go wrong. None of this was mentioned in the dictionary definition. The IRA also insists that the hyphen be removed from the term anti-Semitism because it allows for the possibility of something called Semitism. And this was a pseudo-scientific racial classification used by Nazis. But using it in this context also waters down anti-Semitism's meaning, which is the opposition and hatred toward no one else but Jews. This is all missing from the dictionary's definition and the spelling of the term. And this is something that we're all concerned about, the rise of anti-Semitism. I think it's important that the dictionary be documenting these terms, be documenting the trajectory of these terms. And I think that's what we'll probably be discussing at our Shabbat table. Sefi, what about you? Well, folks, the Kinneret is almost full. It feels like for most of my life, Israel has been facing a drought or near drought conditions. But for the first time in years, the Sea of Galilee, the freshwater lake in the north of Israel, is almost full. You know, when we talk about Israel and lines, often uh, the first kind of color line that comes to mind is the green line, the 1967 border between Israel and the West Bank. But there are some other colored lines that are important to understand when you're talking about the Kinneret. There's uh, the upper red line. That's when the lake is full and threatens to flood the nearby city of, uh, of Tiberias. Um, then there's the lower red line. When the sea is dangerously low, and that is when people are supposed to stop pumping water from out of the Kinneret to meet the needs of the local population. And then there is the lower black line, which is the really bad one. That is when the level is so low that it's actually below the pipe, so it's impossible to pump water out. And it's below the pipes by design because pumping it further could be ecologically irreversibly damaging for the lake. So perhaps unsurprisingly for a people forged in the desert, water is a critical component of Judaism. It infuses our traditional liturgy. It permeates our folk songs and poems. And awareness of water flows throughout much of what we know about modern Israel. We know that the Dead Sea is the lowest body of water on earth. We know the importance of the Jordan River. We know about Israel's incredible innovations in desalination technology, turning the water from the Mediterranean into a potable resource. But the Dead Sea is dying, drying up leaving nothing but salty pillars in its wake. And the Jordan River, never the mighty river of myth, is often barely a trickle, and desalination poses its own ecological drawbacks, and so it can't necessarily be relied on. A reversal of fortune for the Kinneret could change all that. If the Kinneret rises about a meter more, it'll hit that upper red line. 
when it threatens to flood the city of Tiberias. And so Israeli officials will open a dam by Kibbutz Deganya, the first kibbutz, to prevent flooding. And when the dam opens, water will flow down from the Galilee into the Jordan River and eventually into the Dead Sea. This is how the water ecosystem is supposed to work in Israel. Water from the Golan Heights fills the Kinneret. The Kinneret flows into the Jordan and the Jordan nourishes the population and replenishes the Dead Sea. A mix of geopolitics and climate change has disrupted that system in recent decades. But at least right now, The circle of water life is basically back where it should be, and that's something to be thankful for, and something we'll be talking about at my Shabbat table. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 